Hey, thanks for your interest in Bible Basics. We are going to be doing this as kind of a podcast format. Hopefully this works out for you. And normally when we talk, there's various discussion points and things like that. It takes about uh, like an hour and a half, and I'm guessing this is going to go about 45 minutes. So I'm glad that you're interested in the class. This is the first one, and this is going to be pretty basic stuff in the sense that we're going to look at what is Christianity about, and we're going to try and answer that question. And the way that we do that, if you look in your notes, the course is set up. It's not meant to be like a funnel to become part of our church, but this is from John chapter 20, verses 30 through 31. That's on page, it's just the introduction on your notes. So Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. This is from John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. The point of the Bible is not just a story about an amazing man. The point of the Bible is that through faith, it worked through the Holy Spirit, that we can believe and know Jesus as our Savior. That's the point of this course, and we're going to use a number of materials. The materials, as you can see, are God's Word. That's how God uses and speaks to us, is through his word. And in the Bible, God tells us about himself, his plan to save us, and the promises to bless us, which we'll look at in this lesson. So what happens when we're done? Um, Upon completion of this course, you may desire to become a member of Eternal Rock. Of course, that's our desire, and we think we've got a great church that looks to uh, proclaim what the truths of Scripture are in a place where someone can find community and grow in that community. That's our prayer. But know this, taking this course doesn't obligate you to that. We're essentially saying, we believe the Bible teaches this. This is what we do teach. And if this makes sense to you, of course, we want you to be part of our our church family. If you've got questions about stuff, we're not going to force you into being part of this group. Uh, What's the purpose of this Bible Basics? Certainly my favorite class to teach. I really enjoy this one. I've taught it probably 20 plus times, and it's one of my favorites. And the purpose is just to enter the Bible to you and God's word with you and ultimately to show God's glorious truth. It's an amazing thing that we can't even get our mind around, but at least we can explore this together, ask questions together, and in the end, it always changes a person's life. So as we get started, this is the first lesson of, technically there's 11 lessons, but we start to double up at the end, and I'll record this one here. So this is uh, lesson number one, the problem and the promise. I should state very clearly that this is not like a recording studio. This is my microphone that's supposed to be a pretty good microphone, and then just in my office. So if you hear background noises, I apologize about that in advance, but uh, let's get to it. So the problem and the promise, it you have probably observed at this point, if you're more than like 10 years old, that you've got problems in your life. Um, your work is not the easiest thing in the world. Your relationships are not without problems. Your dreams that you had, even as a kid, some of those are fulfilled Some of those are not fulfilled. And you're wondering, maybe, is this just me, or is there frustration in my life? You're not alone, if that's what you're thinking. Every person has frustration and difficulties in their life. Where does this come from? Well, scripturally, God has an answer for that. He explains that most, we could say, really every problem in our life comes from what we would call sin. And he shows that in two spots. Uh, The first one is Genesis chapter 3. 
You can see that in your notes, verses 4 through 6. And I'll read it just in case you're just listening. If you've got it in front of you, you may want to just read it. But it says in Genesis chapter 3, so keep in mind that God had created the earth. The record of God's creation is chapters 1 and 2. And then verse 3, at chapter 3, it already gets difficult. And Adam and Eve are the only ones on the planet at this point, and they have an encounter with a serpent, and that's the devil in kind of this serpent's body. And the devil says to Eve, as she looks at this fruit that you've probably heard of the forbidden fruit, she looks at this fruit and sees it's desirable for gaining wisdom. She sees this fruit, and the devil is convincing her through doubt to try and convince her that she should eat this fruit. So he says this, Genesis chapter 3, verses 4 through 6. You will not surely die, the serpent said to the woman. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened, and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. When the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food, and pleasing to the eye, and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some and ate it. She also gave some to her husband, who was with her, and he ate it. Now, the interesting thing from this passage is we would say, whose fault is it that this, uh, who broke the command? Whose fault is it? If you're like most people, you're saying, well, it's Eve's fault, apparently. She's there, she sees the fruit, she listens to the devil, and she eats it. However, throughout Scripture, it is Adam is the one who's being blamed. And we, you wonder, is that just a glimmer of later on as God lays down the unique roles for men and women? And one of those roles for men, which just kind of give you a glimpse of this, is that they're to take responsibility for their family, that they're to look out for other people. They're supposed to put the needs of other people completely in front of their own. And the example that men have for showing that type of love was Jesus. Jesus is the one who laid down his life for the church, and as a human being, a man is part of his family, is to look out and lead and take responsibility for the choices. Interestingly enough, it's Adam who is the one who is blamed for this sin. And we see that in Romans. So this is centuries and millennia later, as the Apostle Paul, who looks back on this, tries to explain what is going on. He says this, Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man, and death through sin, and in this way death came to all men, because all sinned. Notice very clearly that it says sin entered the world through one man, not woman. So was that first sin doubt? Was that first sin ease fault? And I think we'd have the question, or is that first sin Adam's fault? Because he saw this about to happen and he saw Eve about to disobey God's command. And instead of taking responsibility and stepping in, instead he just lets it happen. Because it says at the end of verse 6, she gave some to her husband and where was he? He's with her, standing right there. So if I'd write something on the blank, it might be this. Adam and Eve deliberately disobeyed God. And because of that, as a result, now all people are sinful. This certainly has ramifications that you've lived with, but we can see it in a number of places. What are some of the effects besides human being? It says Adam and Eve, um, now everyone is going to die. Death came into the world because of this. But that's not the only thing. So Romans eight nineteen to 22 says this. The creation waits in eager expectation for the sons of God to be revealed. So we have personification talking about creation. 
For the creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice, but by the will of the one who subjected it, in hope that the creation itself will be liberated or freed from its bondage to decay and brought into the glorious freedom of the children of God. We know that the whole creation has been groaning in the pains of childbirth right up to the present time. Now, all that is personification, which is saying, let's put human attributes on something that's inanimate. But you get the point. The picture from God's point of view and Apostle Paul's point of view is they look at creation who is subjected to decay and struggles and not the world that God intended. There's suffering in a sense. So not only people, I would write in that blank, but nature lost its perfection. Nobody, Adam and Eve didn't have a bomb shelter. They weren't thinking like things were going to be destroyed and it was going to decay. Instead, they had perfection and they lived in perfection until sin enters the world. Well, there's other ramifications that come with this. Genesis three sixteen to 19 says this, to the, man, to the woman, he said, this is inside your notes, I will greatly increase your pains in childbearing. With pain you will give birth to children. I don't know what it was like before, so that's one thing, pain in childbirth. Your desire will be for your husband, and he will rule over you. That's kind of number two. Relationships are going to be have friction, and we'll talk more about that in just about two seconds. The Adam, he said, because you listened to your wife and ate from the tree about which I commanded you, notice how he puts the blame on Adam, and what did he do? He listened to bad advice that commanded you not to eat of it. Cursed is the ground because of you. Through painful toil, you will eat of it all the days of your life. It is going to produce thorns and thistles for you, and you will eat the plants of the field. It's not going to be easy, but by the sweat of your brow, you will eat food until you return to the ground. Since from it you were taken, for dust you are, and to dust you will return. We see four things. We see four things that I think are distinctly unique in this situation. Number one, uh, pain in childbirth. I have no idea what it was like before. Number two, relationships are going to struggle. It says your husband is going to rule over you. And so God has given him this unique role as the head of the family. And how is he going to use that role? In a sinful world, instead of looking out for people, taking responsibility, putting the other people's needs ahead of itself, deferring his own desires, instead he's going to use that in a domineering role and rule over his husband. Now, often you have the example of how you see that, and it says your desire will be for your husband. This is kind of unique about how men and women are. You see, and in many of us have seen a woman who's, in a sense, abused either physically or mentally, and you say, uh, verbally, and you say, hey, you've got to get out of this relationship. It's terrible for you. Why are you in this relationship? And instead, she says, I love this person. And then the cycle kind of comes back around like loops, and then suddenly the man is doing something that's abusive and they can't believe it and then it loops back around and he does something over the top nice and she says, hey, I think he's really changed. That's what we call the cycle of abuse. It just goes in a circle back around and back around and back around and back around and back around. All of this is a result of living in a sinful world and the selfishness that is now taking over people. Number three is that no longer is it going to be easy but this is hard work that you're going to, we have hobbies that we really enjoy but work is work. And finally, number four, 
ultimately death. Death is what's going to come. From death you come. You're going to go to the ground this, and you're going to go back to the ground. So what what is the theological terms that we talk about? We have two terms. One, you can see with those arrows on the side. One is inherited sin. And the other that we're looking at is uh, actual sin. So let's look at inherited sin first. Romans 5, 19, where that first arrow points, says, For just as through the disobedience of the one man, many were made sinners. What did so one person sinned, what's the result? Everybody born after Adam is born sinful, unless it's miraculous, which we'll talk about next week. So this is what we call inherited sin. It's like sickle cell anemia. You don't do anything about it, but people that have that in their genes, they're just in their genes. They couldn't do anything about it. It doesn't matter if they eat well. That gene is going to be inside their makeup and their DNA. So if you put something in the blank, I would maybe put, we are all born sinful, Example, babies are born sinful. We'll talk about that in the coming chapters. So at this point, you might be frustrated because you're saying, now I get, let me get this straight. I'm suffering for the pain and suffering of somebody else. Like, this isn't a good deal. However, Matthew 15, 19 explains, out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false testimony, and slander. So we inherit sinfulness, but even if uh, we would be damned to hell, as we're going to look at, even if that was the only thing that happened, but that's not the only thing that happens. Each one of us in our life commits actual sins. And I heard a man who kind of explained this, who would say, okay, have you ever told a lie? And you say, yeah, I've told a lie. Well, that makes you a liar. And if you've ever stolen anything, that makes you a thief. So... So we're liars and thieves and robbers and uh, we're violent on different levels. All these sins actually come out in our life. Here's how it's described from the Apostle Paul. So you can see at the bottom of your page, I've got to find it in my own Bible. Romans chapter 3, 9 to 20. So I'm opening that up right now. You can follow along if you have your Bible. Romans chapter 3, 9 through 20 paints a picture of what it's like to be a human being on this earth. So sorry about the page turns here. I'm coming on it right now. This is who you are, according to the Apostle Paul. What shall we conclude? Are we any better? Not at all. We have already made the charge that Jews and Gentiles alike are all under sin. As it's written, there's no one righteous, not even one. There's no one who understands, no one who seeks God. All have turned away and have together become worthless. There's no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves, their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is on their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways. And the way of peace they do not know. There's no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law. For what purpose? It says, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. You, let me just comment here. You cannot have a right relationship with God just by doing the right things in the law. But instead, what's the law good for? It says, rather, through the law, 
We become conscious of sin. The very best thing that can happen from the laws, you cannot earn your way to heaven. It's impossible. The very best thing that comes from the law is a realization that we can't fulfill the law. I use the example of like history. If you really love history, or a diesel engine or something like that, you really love something, you think you know about it until you start to learn about it, and then you just realize how much you don't know. The same thing is true with God's word and his expectations for us. You could simplify it really easily. But then the more you study and the more you understand and the more you live it in your life, the more you know about what God expects of you, the more you realize you don't know anything. So what does this mean? I mean, what does it mean that we're all sinful? Well, God prescribes a punishment for sin. So God describes a punishment for sin. What is that? It says in Romans 6.23, the wages of sin is death. So the fair payment, the fair payment of a life of sinfulness is death. So here's the question. Could God, who is perfect and he's holy and just, threaten eternal death as punishment for sin and then not follow through on a sentence? So why does that matter? Because I'm not perfect and holy and just, but can I threaten my kids with a punishment and then not follow through with it? I'm not saying it's wise, but I can do that. That's possible. Can God do that when he is perfect and he's holy and he's just say, okay, if you do this, this is the result. The answer is no. God, If God says sin deserves death, it deserves death. That doesn't mean we try to just say, okay, God, that's what you say, we're all going to die. Instead, we try and come up with our own solutions. And some of those fit into these categories. So if a sinner wants to, it's in the box. Wants God's love and go to heaven, what would he or she try to do to earn God's love? We've got a couple options counterbalance sins with good deeds. Here's one way that you can do that. And usually what kind of relationship does this work with? Kind of romantic relationships, if you're, or family relationships. You, you love each other, you do something wrong, and you can buy flowers. You love each other, you can do something else because you have some credibility. You've built what the counselors call chips in the bank. This is kind of added up over time. You put deposits in over time expressing your love. Now you do something wrong, it takes out some of that deposit, but then you're able to put it back in by doing a good thing. Number two, uh, we try harder. From now on, I'm going to try harder. So it's like this picture of a ladder. So most relationships I see this work in is in your employer-employee relationships. You've expressed this. So you're involved in something. You get to your evaluation, and what do you say? Almost immediately, like, you know, you're right. You're right. If you receive feedback well, you should receive feedback well. You go, hey, that's a great point. From now on, I'm really going to hit it. From now on, I'm really going to try. From now on, I'm going to really do it. The third one, I think, at least I'm not as evil as so-and-so. I think this one most often comes up when you talk about self-justification. If you're involved in something that you know is not right, it's very easy to justify it in your own mind and to other people's mind. If you just step back and say, hey, this other person is doing it in a way greater degree. This other person is doing this way worse. This other person is way more evil than I am. What I am doing is really not that big a deal. I mean, they're stealing way more than I'm stealing. They're being more lazy than I'm being lazy. They play way more video games than I play video games. They're worse to their wife than I'm worse to my wife. They're worse to the husband than I'm to my husband. They gossip more than I gossip. You can get the point. So do any of these satisfy God's justice and thereby earn God's love in heaven? 
Well, God says in Leviticus 19.2, Be holy. Be holy. Because I, the Lord your God, am holy. James 2.10, Whoever keeps the whole law, the entire thing, but stumbles at just one point, is guilty of breaking the whole thing. You can't have a chain and just not have one link. It's no longer that. The chain is no longer the same length. You can't have a perfect circle and then cut a chunk out. It's no longer a circle. In Romans 3.23, all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. So just look at your things again. If you have any sins, this is a counterbalance. God expects perfect good deeds on one side. If you have any sins whatsoever, it does not counter things out like the Muslims believe. Try harder. I, I picture it like the rungs of a ladder being removed. And you can go and you can work and you do your best and you can excel, but every time you sin, takes a rung away and you're not going to make your way to heaven. Or at least I'm not as evil as. Even in prison, they can find people who are nastier than they are. They, you know, the murderers look at the pedophiles. The pedophiles look at the pedophile murderers. And it's not hard to find someone more evil than you are. But God doesn't ask us to compare ourselves to most of the world. When we get our evaluation, God says, how did you compare to me, which is perfection? So the question is this, or the statement, if you want to fill in the blank, everyone is guilty of sin, absolutely everyone who walks the earth. So if everyone is guilty of sin, and God must punish all sin, what hope is there for a sinner? And this is the beauty of the gospel. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, and that world certainly includes you. How much did he love the world, and how much did he love you? You could read that. God so loved me that he gave his one and only Son, that whoever believes in him, talking of Jesus, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6, but he was pierced for our transgressions. This is 700 plus years before Jesus is born. And this prophecy is talking about the Messiah to come. And it says, he's pierced for our transgressions. Look at the pronouns. He was crushed for our iniquities. Isaiah 53, 5 and 6. The punishment that brought us peace, how is that possible? It says it was upon him. By his wounds, we are healed. We all like sheep, we've gone astray, and each one of us has turned to his own way. And the Lord has laid on him, the chosen Messiah, the iniquity or the sin of every one of us. So God takes, God demands that you have no sin and you have perfect righteousness to be holy. And this exchange takes place because God takes, it says, our sin and lays them on Jesus. Now Jesus has sin. He's removed them from us. But we still haven't done enough. We haven't done all the right things we're supposed to do. And then we see a passage like Corinthians that says, 2 Corinthians 5.21. And it tells us this fact, that God made him who had no sin. Who, who's that? Of course, Jesus. To become sin, to be sin for us, so God is now taking, um, he's putting the sin on Jesus, and he's taking Jesus' perfection, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So he has so completely taken all our sins away and, and credited his perfect righteousness to us that at the end of our math problem that should say death because we're full of sin and haven't done the right things. Instead, it says our sins are gone. We've done the right things through Christ, through faith in him. And at the end of our math problem, it says life. Romans 
3, uh, 21 to 26, this is a continuation of the section that was so depressing, but it says, you remember the best that could happen from the law is just to point out how much sinfulness we have. But then he says, but, verse 21, now a righteousness from God apart from the law has been made known, which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. There's no difference. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, and all are justified. That means uh, declared not guilty, just as if I never sinned. So all are declared not guilty freely by grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. God presented him. That's not us. It's Jesus as a sacrifice of atonement at one man through faith in his blood. He did this not to demonstrate his justice, because in his forbearance, he left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. He did it to demonstrate his justice right now at the present time. So as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in him. So what is this picture? This picture is we can't earn God's love. We, we just can't do it. And instead, we get this beautiful picture of a Savior who says, I'm willing to take your sins on so you can be with me. So if you look at the diagram, our sins are laid on Jesus I get credit for Jesus' life. And there's two key concepts. One is Jesus is our substitute. He died in our place, and now we get life in his place. And then justification. That's a courtroom term that means just as if I never sinned. Two last things. Uh, Ephesians 2, 4 and 5, and then 8 and 9, tells us, where does this come from? Did I earn it really on any level? And it says it like this. But because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions. It is by grace, and and a way to remember that is God's riches at Christ's expense. It is by grace you have been saved. For it is not by grace, for it is by grace you have been saved through faith. This This is not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, not by your own work or effort, not by works so that no one can boast. Whenever the Bible talks about our sin, it's something that we earn. It says the wages of sin, the fair payment of sin is death. Now, we don't fully get that. We can't fully get our mind around that, how how a loving God can, through sin, damn people. We don't fully get that, other than God is perfect and you can't be in his presence with any kind of um, imperfections. Whenever it talks about salvation, it uses words like inheritance. What do you do for an inheritance? You're just born. It says it's a gift. What do you do for a gift? Well, nothing. Otherwise, it's not a gift anymore. What do you do when it says um, grace, God's riches at Christ's expense, undeserved love? Whenever it talks about salvation, it has nothing to do with us. It's God's mercy, his love, and inheritance. And it's something that he has given us. And when it talks about our just reward, it's the result of our sin. When it talks about something we earned, like wages, it's talking about sin. So in short, in short, you and I are all born sinful. Adam and Eve made us sinful. We can get over that because each one of us has lived and committed our own sins. But now we come before God and we can either hide those sins 
we can self-medicate, we can disappear, we can just take those sins for what they are and lay them at the feet of Jesus and say, please forgive these. And God says through faith in Christ that God loved you enough, he loved the world, but he loved you enough to give up his son in our place, in your place, so that through faith in him you might live. And that amazing gift that you received is life in his name. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, we thank you for our time in God's word. Please bless the efforts uh, that we're putting into this. We know that these don't earn our salvation, but we pray that the fruit of working in your word and the Holy Spirit working through that word will continue to strengthen our hearts and bring us closer and closer to you. We thank you for the interest that made us listen to this, anyone who has listened to this, and we encourage them to take the next step as they uh, look to grow in their faith, which is spend time in God's word and let your Holy Spirit work through that. We ask this in your most holy name. Amen. If you'd like to continue this series, um, you can see podcast number two, which is going to cover lesson two, which is talking kind of in the nuts and bolts of the one eternal God. We'll start that podcast by looking at the homework. But the one eternal God, we'll look at the triune God, which we cannot understand, and then we're going to look at uh, what it means as we talk about uh, the nuts and bolts, kind of like how does it work out that Jesus actually died and lived for our salvation. Thanks for listening, and uh, look forward to seeing you soon.